0: So Romans chapter 8, before we actually jump into it, since it's been a couple of weeks and since there's a lot of new faces this morning, I will remind everybody, just with a brief introduction, that the title over the whole book of Romans has been God's Amazing Grace. And we uh, started out sort of representing the various sections in the book of Romans with different buildings, and the first building was the courthouse, where all of humanity was pronounced guilty, and then we were shown the way of justification by faith and that was the first five chapters and now we're in the power plants so if we're not saved by law if we're not made righteous by rules and rituals and restrictions and regulations on morality and spirituality then what is the power where does the power come from for us to live the christian life for us to be right with god and do right and please god and chapter eight gives us really the pinnacle of the answer to that question. If you were around a couple weeks ago, uh, Romans chapter seven ended with Paul saying he was a wretched man. And we know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Well, that's where it comes from. He's just picking up on Paul saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. And so all through chapter seven is filled with the word I and me, and it sort of find ourselves in there. There's a part of us that wants to do what's right then there's a part of us that wants to do what's wrong, and we feel like divided people. I know what's right to do, but I don't do it. And I know what's wrong to do, but that's the very thing I do. I get myself in trouble doing the wrong thing, and we connect with that. We understand some of those difficulties with dealing with our sinful nature or the beast sin that lives on the inside of us, our dual nature. So Paul ends up in Romans 7 just asking that question, who will deliver me, recognizing that it's not his willpower, And in fact, he recognized that the law or restrictions and regulations have actually made things worse. Remember, we talked about sin being like a monster that lives inside of me. And we think, well, the sin monster is getting me in trouble. How many of you know that the sin monster gets us in trouble? And Paul has separated himself from that. He knows, it's not me. I want to do what's right. But there's this monster in me that tends to take over and do the very thing I don't want to do. He hurts people. He says the wrong thing at the wrong time, and he gets angry, and he he just causes so much trouble. And Paul says, that's not me, though. Me, I want to do what's right. And so the challenge in the church is we think, okay, I've got this problem. I want to do what's right, but there's this monster inside of me, and what the monster needs is more restrictions. And so if I give him tighter regulations and tighter rules and more restrictions, then that'll solve the problem. That'll tame the beast. But what happens is instead you find out that the beast is so evil and so sinful that he even takes what's good, the law of God, and actually twists it and uses it to further destroy us because the law always just condemns us and shows us, points out how carnal we are relative to how spiritual and good God is. And we just recognize we just cannot do it in our own power. And so we say, well, what then is the hope that we have to actually live for the Lord? If we can't consistently do what's right, then what hope is there? And that brings us again to the crescendo in chapter 8. Chapter 7, only the word Spirit mentioned, I think, one time. Paul talking about not living in the oldness of the letter of the law, but in the newness of the Spirit. Only time it's mentioned, most of chapter 7 is I and me, and what I want to do, I don't do, and what didn't want to do, that's what I did, wretched man that I am, all full of I and me. But chapter 8 shows us this huge change. We go from I and me to finding the word spirit 25 times in chapter 8. So we recognize just by the vocabulary used that there's a big change coming. We're moving from talking about I and me and my inability, my powerlessness to keep and do all the right moral laws and rules all the time to this idea that I can walk in and live a spirit-filled life. And that's actually, this chapter is so freeing when you finally get a hold of it because the church has struggled with some of the things that we find between chapter seven and chapter eight. So let me just get in. Again, we're in the power plant of God's grace. Where does the power come from to live for God? It comes from not more rules and restrictions and regulations, not more New Year's resolutions and all of those kinds of things. It comes from the Spirit of God living in my life. And that's what you're going to find out as we go through chapter 8. So chapter 8 begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's a radical statement, is it not? It doesn't say there is therefore now some condemnation. See, because some of us have come from churches where we've been exposed to lots of condemnation. Anybody ever been to a church where all you feel is condemned and judged all the time? A legalistic kind of church, a church where the thing is about our rules and here's how you're supposed to dress if you're a Christian. Here's the thing you got to do. You got to drive this kind of car. You got to use this kind of Bible. You got to wear these kind of clothes. You got to show up this time and this time. And there's all these rules. And then when you don't follow the rules, what do you get? You get condemned. And condemnation just simply means to judge worthy of punishment. So to have this statement to say that there's therefore no no condemnation when we felt condemnation from the church, we deal with condemnation then in our own mind as well. But before we talk about that anymore, that's not an offer to everybody Jesus said in John chapter 3 that if you don't believe in Christ, you're already condemned. So there is condemnation for a certain group of people, but there's no condemnation for another group of people. Now, I want to be in the unpunishable group. I want to be in the no condemnation group. Anybody else with me? I want to be in the no punishment group because I don't like punishment. Punishment is no fun. So I want to know, is this no condemnation for me or not? Well, he tells us there, this no condemnation is now to those who are Where? Following the law? Keeping all the rules? No, it's to those who are in Christ Jesus. I can remember years ago as a new Christian being in church, and the pastor was preaching a topical message on being in Christ. And at the end of a 30-minute message, I still had no idea what it meant to be in Christ. I'd heard the words, well, you're in Christ Jesus, you're in Christ Jesus. And as a new Christian, I didn't know what that meant. And so... I guess I should know what this means because for us, it's pretty important, right? Because it involves whether we're condemned or not. So we should understand what being in Christ means. So you know the story of the parable of the vine and the branches, John chapter 15, I believe it is. Jesus talks about, I'm the vine and you're the branches. You got to get that part straight, right? We're not the vine. Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. And he talks about vines that are in him, any vine that's in me and bears fruit or doesn't bear fruit, and he goes through the whole story. But that's the key, I think, for understanding what it means to be in Christ. To be in something is, speaks of a position, speaks of a place. And so to be in Israel or to be in the military is a word that speaks of placement. And so to be for a branch, to be in the vine, means it is connected. It's unified with. The two are connected. They're one. So to be in Christ means that I'm unified with him. I'm connected to him. Spiritually, it's something God does. Matter of fact, back in chapter six, it talks about being baptized into Christ. So we're not just baptized into water. When we're baptized, it's symbolic. It's a representation of something that's happening in a spiritual realm that the minute we open our heart and say, I want to be saved, I want to let Christ in, God joins me together with Christ. Just like I'm buried with him in baptism, united with him in his burial. In the same way, I'm united with him in his resurrection. I'm with him. Wherever he goes, that's where I go. Whatever he gets, that's what I get. Uh, Watchman Nee wrote a great book called The Normal Christian Life. And that's what you have to know about this. The spirit-filled, spirit-empowered Christian life is not just for certain people, it's for everybody. This, what we're talking about in Romans 8, is the normal Christian life, the expected experience of the Christian. So to be in Christ, the way he explained it, and I thought it really worked well, I have here my pencil and I have my Bible and these two things are separate things. I can put my pencil here and I can put my Bible on the stage and they're not joined together. But I can also take my pencil and I can put it where? Say it, In I can put it in my Bible. Now, if I put my Bible on my music stand, where's my pencil? It's on the music stand. Why? Because it's in my Bible. Okay, so that to me was like, ah, duh. You know, that's a really simple illustration of a very profound spiritual truth. And sometimes the simplest things are the most profound. And when I heard that, I said, I get it. I get it. Whenever I'm in Christ, I have whatever he has. Now, would God ever condemn Christ Jesus? Now, he was condemned but not for himself. Would Christ ever be condemned? He lived a sinless life. He rose from the dead. Is Christ condemned? Somebody say no. No, pastor, Christ is not condemned. He's the son of God. So if Christ is not condemned, matter of fact, he took my sin and he took it to the grave. And then he rose again. I was justified. I am unpunishable as long as I'm in Christ. If I don't want Christ, then I'm still under condemnation. Then I'm still accountable, to be punishable for the crimes I've committed against God. But in Christ, you see, that's important because he's just got done crying out about what a wretched man that he is. He does all these things that are wrong. He wants to do what's right. See, his heart is right. He wants what God wants, but he finds that he fails. And so this beautiful word to you and to me, because you've oftentimes said, hey, you know, why is God punishing me? Have you said that before? Why is God punishing me? And this verse is for you. No, 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 God is not punishing you. It doesn't say there is therefore now no correction. Does it say that? No, there is correction for the believer, but there's no condemnation. And that should help you out because one of the hardest things for you to deal with is self-condemnation. You blow it, you mess up. And God says, look, I'm not condemning you. Don't condemn yourself because when you live a self-condemned life, then you're prone to giving up. Because you feel like you've failed. You feel like, well, it's all over. God's going to get me and I can't continue. So you end up falling back into patterns of sin and hopelessness. And condemnation is really hard to deal with. And so this verse, when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's humongous. And you have to remember that whenever you feel condemned, you have to go back to this verse. If you're the person that really wants what the Lord wants and you've let the Lord into your life and you're living for Him and you're walking with Him, yes, you're going to blow it. Doesn't say there's no more sin for those that are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say there's no more failure for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is sin and there is failure, but what isn't there? There's no more condemnation. God loves you. This chapter begins with no condemnation. And what's it end with? No separation. What can separate me from the love of God? If God is for me, who can be against me? And this is important for you to know because this is what keeps you going. Now, there's a little ending to that sentence for who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see that at the end of that first verse there? Now, you can put a parenthesis around this. Just a little note about this, and we'll come back to it later. As scholars attempt to reconstruct the Bible, they find pieces and parts of manuscripts, what the Bible is based on, these ancient manuscripts and they compare them together. And as they compare these manuscripts together, what they found is that some of the manuscripts include this verse that says, this sentence or part of a sentence includes who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But other manuscripts don't include it. Some feel, some scholars feel this was added by a copyist because he read that therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, It can't be that simple. I got to add something to that. I got to clarify this. And it'll get clarified. This is just picked up from verse four. So we're going to talk about that, but not right there. The first thing he wants you to to know is that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, period. The rest is true, but it comes later. So that's why I'm not going to deal with that now. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So this is how this happens. He makes his statement. And then you say, well, how does that happen? How does that work? How can there be no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? Well, this is how. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. So it talks about two laws. Now, you know what a law is, right? Well, maybe you haven't thought about it, but in your heart, you know what law is. Law is something that happens over and over and over again with the same results. It's a set down, a laid down principle. The word law just comes from the word to lay down. It's set. It's absolute. I know we live in a culture that doesn't like absolutes, but I'm absolutely certain that gravity is still at work here on planet Earth. If you don't think so, try to fly. You know, you can't do it because the law of gravity is always at work universally across the face of the Earth. Doesn't matter what your religion is. Doesn't matter, you know, what your nationality is. The law of gravity applies to you. That's a law. It's something that happens over and over again, predictably with the same results and absolute truth. And so he speaks of two laws. One is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And the other is the law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death is the one I needed to get free from. See, the law of sin and death is the fact that the law brings and exposes my sin. And sin always leads to what, church? Sin and death are connected. Sin always leads to death. And I found out, Paul said, hey, there's this principle working in me that I sin. Does anybody here not sin? Going once. Yes, I'm sinless, but I'm too proud to admit it. Oh, okay. This is the problem with the world. There is in every human being that's descended from great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, there is a law always at work, consistently, universally, no matter where you were born, what color your skin is, what your nationality is, what your religion is. This law is always at work, and it's the law of sin that leads to death. It was happening there in the garden, right? That's where it all started. Sin, Adam and Eve, sinned, they disobeyed God and it brought condemnation and punishment, which was death. And that's been extended to all of us that are descended from Adam. And that's what we're trying to escape. And that's why people do spiritual things and that's why people try to do morally right things and because we're trying to escape this law of sin and death, but it's always there, we can't get rid of it. Unless you have another law. You see, sometimes one law, supersedes another law. See, we just got back from Israel, and guess what? We didn't swim. That's good news, because I'm a lousy swimmer. How did we get to and from Israel? How did we get there? No, I did not fly. I don't have wings. We got in an airplane. You see, there's the law of gravity, but there's also another law called the law of aerodynamic. And by getting in an airplane, and a certain amount of thrust and a certain amount of distance and lift and all these different laws that apply. That airplane overcomes the law of gravity and we fly. Now, what happens if I step out of the plane? That's not good. I come crashing down. Maybe you can understand it this way. Sometimes you're driving around past the, the dogwood restaurant there over by the lake, and there's a red light there, and there's also the rescue squad there. And I tell you, sometimes the fire trucks come out of there, the rescue squad vehicles come out of there and their lights are going and they're speeding. And they go right through the lights. How fair is that? Like that's against the law, right? If I try to do that, I get pulled over. But the ambulances and the fire and rescue have a higher law that transcends the law of the red light. And it's called the law of the emergency vehicle. I'm making all this up. <laughs> I don't know what they're called, but there's, they're there. I know that they're there. but there's another law. And in your life, Paul says, look, don't try to do it. Just because someone's in church doesn't mean that they're in Christ because religion can be a way to hide and try to get free from the law of sin and death, but it doesn't do it. Religion and external laws and regulations and stipulations and requirements can never change a person on the inside. They just lead to more condemnation. And that's why we try to hide. And that's why church is great at producing hypocrites because we just try to, we figure law has got to be the answer. We need to tell people you got saved. Well, now you got to have discipleship class because in discipleship class, we're going to tell you all the laws of being part of the church. You can't do this. You got to do that. You can't do this. You can't watch those movies. You can't listen to this music. You got to do this. You got to show up here. You got to read that Bible. And we do the whole thing. But here it's not the law of more law. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Circle that word spirit, I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you know another way to define the word spirit is breath or wind? In John chapter three, Jesus talks about being born again. He's talking to our old buddy Nicodemus, and he's telling Nicodemus, hey, people that are born again, born of the spirit, it's like the wind. You can't see where the wind is. You can't see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going, but you see the effect it has. And that's how it is in the lives of believers. That's what Jesus says. That you just know something's changed. There's something different. Because just like the wind, you can't see it, but you see the effects. Now, if a flag is just at the top of a flagpole and there's no wind, it's just a calm day. What does that flag look like? It's just kind of laying there. It looks dead. But the wind blows. And what does it do? It animates. It gives life. Now the flag is moving around, flapping in the wind. You can't see it. But it's there and you know it's there because it brings life. It's an empowering force that gives life to what is subject to it. And that's what the Spirit of God does in your life. You gotta stop having a law-based relationship with God and embrace what the Spirit of God is doing inside of you. I don't know if you remember when you got saved. I don't know what your story is. When I got saved, I wasn't sitting in church. and wasn't listening to a Bible study. Many of you already know my testimony. But it was the Spirit of God that just spoke to me about my sin. And as a new believer, I didn't know what repentance was. I'd never heard the word before in my life, and I had heard it. I had forgotten long ago from the time I was a child where my parents took me to church. But the Spirit of God came into my life, and I began to do the things of the Spirit just naturally. You see, before you're born again, it's natural for you to sin. Oh, you can do some good things now and again, but that's not natural it's natural for you to sin. But when you are born again, it's natural for you to do what's right. That becomes your new nature. Now, occasionally you'll sin, but it won't feel right. You'll know inside it's not right. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing that. And no one has to tell you. I remember when I got convicted about R-rated movies, we were at my parents' house and they asked us to watch this movie. And we said, okay, we'll watch the movie, Rated R movie. And uh, I just remember watching it and being like, oh, I don't really feel like I should be watching this. And it wasn't anybody that said there was no rule of, here's what movies you can watch. It was just the Spirit of God telling me, you shouldn't be watching. It's so, okay, I don't want to watch this. Now, I think we downplay the role of the Spirit in our lives way too much. Church at large has become very law-based, and it's killing the church. We need to see believers that are empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit that every believer has, and responding and listening to the Spirit of God in your life. Now, I brought this little book called Mimosa. This is written by a woman named Amy Carmichael who had a ministry in India. And this book has always been a reminder to me about the power of the Spirit of God. And it may be surprising to you what happens with this book. I'll give you the little tagline here. It says, the inspirational and dramatic story of a Hindu child who heard of God's love for her and trusted him through years of persecution and adversity. So the summary of the story is a father brings his daughters to this orphanage in India called the Dunivore House. Can't afford to take care of his kids, so he brings his oldest daughter to live at the Dunivore House, and he brings along with him his younger daughter, Mimosa. And they ask if they can. both of the girls can stay. His dad is already feeling shame of not being able to care for both of his girls. He leaves the oldest daughter, but he takes the youngest daughter, Mimosa, home with him, but not until they had had a chance to be there for just a very short time. And the workers of the Dunavor house shared the gospel, just a little bit, just an inkling of the gospel of Jesus Christ with both the girls. One stayed, one went home. And as she left, they knew, they could see that there was a spark in her eyes. They knew she was interested. She's begging her father, can we stay? I want to learn more. And her father said, no, we have to go. And as they watched that little girl named Mimosa leave that place, their hearts were broken, knowing that here was a girl how could she possibly find her way to the Lord? How could she possibly remember the little bit she was told? And then many, many years later, I believe it was about 22 years later, after having gone through all kinds of adversity and persecution, she shows back up at the Dunivore house. They hadn't seen her in 22 years. And I'll read you a little excerpt from the book. It said, we had many talks together as she comes back to the house and sees the people that had met her when she was a young girl. We had many talks together, and the talks came to be like looks through open windows in a house full of beautiful things. One evening, we sat on a fallen block of stone, looking without speaking at the pink flush in the sky over the mountains. The question rose in my mind, how did Mimosa know what she ought to do and ought not to do in the little matters of life where compromise would have been so easy and a narrow hardness so hindering and hurting to others? The festivals, for example, remember she grew up in a Hindu home and was living married to a a Hindu husband. The festivals, for example, that are part of Indian life as much as the pattern woven into the carpet is part of the carpet. How would she respond to these festivals, the little customs and courtesies that are like the dye and the colors? What of them? How can one walk at all without offense? Well, Mimosa said, when my son was a baby, my sister-in-law asked me to come with her to a great festival in the temple by the sea. And all my neighbors and relatives went. Yes, everyone went, and I went too. There was much brightness and gaiety, but at night, tom-toms and strange noises and a feeling of something I did not like. I did not go ever again. And the family ceremonies and feasts, question mark. I always went if I could, but in the ritual of the corner, I'm not exactly sure what that is. It's a Hindu ritual. While the women sensed the offerings, swaying the censer. So they had the incense censer, and they would sway that back and forth. Then I waited outside, I waited while they marked Siva's sign upon their foreheads. Siva is one of the Hindu gods. They put the sign on the, the forehead. And then I went and I joined in with them. And so it was all through. She could not tell me why she had felt some things impossible. It was just that she was not at home in that air and the sounds were the voices of strangers. Mimosa had no Bible. The Spirit of God in her life. The chapter goes on to say, it's like a golden thread, and if you just grab hold of that golden thread, the Spirit of God, if that's all you had. See, some of you are thinking, well, is that possible? I mean, can you live the Christian life without a Bible? Thank God we have the Bible. It certainly draws us close to God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, thinking that in them you will find life. But they are those that speak of me, of Jesus. That little girl let Jesus Christ into her heart. Spirit of God came to dwell in her, and that sustained her for the rest of her life. Some people don't have a Bible. And yet they still can live for Christ. You have a Bible, and we find it's harder for us to live for Christ. Because it's not about just showing up at church, it's about the Spirit of God listening, the attentiveness to the Spirit of God. When I got saved, no one had to tell me to go to church. No one had to beg me to go to church. The Spirit of God in my life was drawing me to Christ and drawing me to other people that were filled with the Spirit. You didn't have to tell me to read my Bible. The Spirit in me was drawing me to read. I got to get into the Word, I want to read the Bible. You see the difference? Some people come to churches because they have to. Other people come to church because they get to. Some people read their Bible because they have to, or they're supposed to. Other people read their Bible because they long to. The difference is the Spirit of God in me. And that's what Paul is saying here. That law, that Spirit of Christ, the life of Christ, it's a law. Anybody that has the Spirit of God dwelling in them has life. And that exempts me. If that's true, yes, I may fail. Yes, I may fall. Yes, I may sin. But my overall general direction of life is with Christ and for Christ. And if that's the case, then I'm not condemned even when I fail and sin because it's not what I want to do. It's not who I am. Watch what he says next. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a wonderfully packed, run-on sentence. Notice what Paul says. He says the first thing is that the law couldn't do it. The law was weak. What the law couldn't do, maybe you've tried nagging somebody to change. Have you noticed that yet? You try nagging, you try telling them over and over again what they're supposed to do. And they know it already, but they can't do it. And notice that your nagging doesn't really produce the results you're looking for, does it? Sometimes it has the opposite effect, makes them angrier. And that's just proof of what you're finding out here. Paul says the law can't do it. Telling someone what they should do doesn't help them to actually do it. That has to happen, takes motivation on the inside. I've realized that. The one thing I am powerless to do is to change people. I can't even change myself. But the Spirit of God now, when the Spirit of God comes into a person's life, any man that is in Christ is a new creation. That changes things. So what the law couldn't do, what rules couldn't accomplish, what restrictions couldn't produce, not because they're wrong, but because I'm weak, because a person is weak in their flesh, God did it. He did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ took on human form, the incarnation. He came as a like the sacrificial animal of the Old Testament. If you remember the Old Testament, the day of atonement, all the sins of the nation laid on that animal, that sacrificial goat or lamb. And then that animal is slaughtered. And with it, with its death, it takes the sins of the worshiper who brought it. That animal substitutes its life for the life of the worshiper and takes all of those sins and condemns them, takes them to death. So then the worshiper is restored to a right place with God. And they would do that over and over again. But what Paul is saying is all those sacrifices pointed to the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who took all of our sin and condemned it. He didn't condemn me. He condemned my sin. That's the problem. That's the good news. My sin was taken to the grave and I was restored to righteousness. That's why I'm unpunishable. I'm justified. I'm made right with God, not by anything I've done, but by what Jesus did for me. God accomplished it. That's grace. That's why chapter eight is about the amazing grace of God. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled not by us, but in us, who us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So the natural result of having the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in me, having the spirit of God in me, the natural result is that I don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What does that mean? Well, to walk is a Greek word that means literally to walk around, to walk around, to walk around on planet earth, to live, to exist, to make decisions daily, the mundane parts of your life. So there are people that walk in connection with, in conjunction with the flesh. What is that? Man, this is a complicated study. The flesh is that self-centered, self-willed, self-concerned part of our lives. It's the part that's connected to Adam in sin. And its self is at the center, meeting my needs, doing what I want, pleasing myself, and searching for my own happiness apart from God. That's the life that lived according to the flesh. I'm doing what pleases me as opposed to what the spirit produces is the life that's lived according to or towards or in the direction of the things of the spirit or things of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, which describes me more? I mean, if someone didn't know you were a Christian and in a conversation with you, would they hear more about God or about your hobby? Would they hear more about God or about your parties or about the things that you're trying to accomplish in life for you? Are you at the center? I mean, it's not wrong to want to have ambitions and want to accomplish things, but if they're first, if those are the priority, you can only have one priority in your life. Those that walk according to the flesh, pleasing themselves is their priority. Yeah, 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 I go to church. Yeah, 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 I attend Bible study. Yeah, 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 I put something in the offering plate, but the main gist of my life is for me. Those that walk according to the Spirit have a whole different change. The main gist of life now is not about me. It's about God. And you can know that you know that you know how that works. And if that's you, by the next verse, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. So that's how you know. It's where your mind is. It's what your mind is thinking about. It's your mindset, you could say. And again, these are kind of revealing things. It's important because at the end of this, I want you to be able to say for sure that my life is not just about showing up at church, that the Spirit of God dwells in me. I have been born again. Usually the first question I ask people when I meet them and we talk about church, I say, well, would you say if I asked you the question, have you been born again, what would you say to that? And then sometimes people say, well, I go to church. That tells me something, not much, but it tells me that maybe you've not been born again. And the only life that'll do it for you, gang, is the Spirit-filled life. Anything else will leave you high and dry, frustrated and discouraged or living as a hypocrite because the people that live according to the flesh, their mind is all about the next experience. And you can listen, religion can serve the flesh. Listen, we live in this day and age of where church is all about the experience. And if I've had a good experience at church, if I've felt good when I leave, you see, that's man-centered religion. If I'm going to church because of what it gives me, then that's living according to the flesh. And it's using spiritual things to feed my flesh. It's letting God serve my needs. And that's not the spirit-filled life. People that are spirit-filled show up saying, what can I do? Because Jesus showed up to serve, right? So if the spirit of Jesus is living in me, I'm going to show up to spirit saying, serve. And you just go, I feel like I got to serve because that feels right inside. It's what I'm supposed to do. And so you do that because the Spirit of God is compelling you. It's an inward compulsion, not an outward frustration. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. A person who is chasing experiences for pleasure will find themselves frustrated because, and I'll tell you why, have you ever been involved with a great experience and you go, you know what, I'd love to capture this moment forever. You ever said that? And what do you find? You can't. I'd love to capture this moment in Israel. I'd love to be there and live there forever. But if you come down off the mountain, the experience ends. And if that's what you're living for, if that's what you're deriving your life from, if that's what's feeding you, then you have to chase the next experience and you will find a life of anxiety. You will not have peace and it will never give you the thing you hoped it would give you. Because the flesh can never do that for you. The flesh can't give you life. It only leads to death. But the Spirit gives life and peace. Spirit-filled people, they're just at peace. They're no full of drama and all that stuff. Yeah, there's some things that happen. But generally, you just live a life of peace because the Spirit of God. Is Jesus freaked out? Did Jesus freak out when he was going to be crucified? Or was he at peace? Somebody say he was at peace. Thank you. You see, the carnal mind, verse 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So we're bringing this thing down from the level of my actions to the level of my mind, and action never happens until I think the thought. I think the thought, then I do the action. And where does sin start? Sin starts in the mind, and where does righteousness start? It starts in the mind. And so what you're doing with your mind, what you think about, where your mind is focused, not on what I'm not doing or should be doing, but Jesus, get your mind focused on Jesus, on a person, not on a set of rules and regulations. It changes everything. All of a sudden, I'm not feeling condemned anymore. Why? Because I'm following Jesus. And he's leading me in the right paths, leading me to do good things. Because the carnal mind, the mind that's not born again, doesn't even have the capacity to please God. It's rebellious. The unredeemed mind seeks its own way. But the redeemed mind wants to do what God wants. It's that spirit of God. is like the wind, right? I ride bicycles. I like to ride on the street in the summertime. I don't like to ride in the cold and wet, but I'll get out there. And some days it's really windy. And the direction I'm going, man, it's straight into the wind. And I find that the harder I work, the tired I get, the worse it gets, the more frustrating it is. I'm exhausted. I haven't gotten anywhere. How many of you feel like that's the story of your life? You know, you're working hard. You're trying to do the right things, but you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Maybe, just maybe, you're working against God. Because the Spirit is going to go in one direction. You're either with God or you're against Him. And when you line yourself up with the wind, man, so I have a route that I ride out one direction, I turn around, I come back, and I know that if I'm huffing and puffing and fighting the wind on the way there, I can't wait to make that U-turn, you might call it repentance, and start going the other direction, and I am flying home because I'm aligning myself with the wind, with the direction of the wind, and I find that life is easier that direction. You're either with God or you're against him. And to to line yourself up with God is to line yourself up against the world and vice versa. And he says, look guys, but I'm not talking to you. He says, so then those that are in the flesh cannot please God, but that's not you. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if or since indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. He says, look, If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and since the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. And that's the minimum for the Christian life. For you to be a Christian, you have to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And that happens by faith, by a miracle of God. You say, God, I want you in my life. God says, okay, I'm going to join you to Christ. God does it. It's a miracle. Can't explain it, but you can see the results. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Whatever your denomination, you can be a member of a church, you can go through the motions, you can take communion. But if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not his. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, buried with him in baptism, but raised to walk in newness of life. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life, not just to your resurrection body, not just something in the future, give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. If you look at your life and you say, I just don't feel like I'm alive. Do you know how many people that I meet and talk to? All kinds of places, meet them at the gym, meet them at the coffee shop, And would you agree with me that there's just a deadness in the world? People are trying so hard to be alive, but you can see it in their eyes, can't you? And they're in churches, and they're dead. Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people alive. And he only does that. There's only one way to have that, and that's by the Spirit of God. It's the grace of God. God offers it to you as a free gift. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. I want to come in. And when I come in, the natural law is that life happens to you. And I'm knocking, I want to come in. And if you open the door to me, I'll come in and we'll dine together. We'll share fellowship, real communion. And he offers that. And there's so many walking around dead zombies. And we have this awesome word of God that says, I can tell you exactly where life comes from. It comes from God and God alone. You can be alive on the inside. Doesn't mean you're not having any bad days. Doesn't mean you're not going to struggle or wrestle. But there the principle of life is existing in you. And that's transformational.